We're going to jump right into the text this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. And if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word, that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. These are God's words to us this morning. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. These are God's words. You can be seated. So I want us to consider three aspects of the text this morning. Our work, our witness, and our worship. Our work, that is the working out of our salvation is what Paul says. Our witness, that is our witness as sons and daughters in and to the world and our worship, our sacrificial worship. So first, our work. By which, again, I don't mean you're 9 to 5 or if you're a mom, you're 24-7, you're forever. But Paul's command to work out our salvation, look at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only my presence, but even more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, this paragraph actually brings to a close this entire section that we've been in that began in chapter 1, verse 27, um, that as citizens of heaven, we should live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul here is more or less saying the same thing, but put differently, Live worthy of the gospel. Continue in your obedience. That is work out your salvation. So Paul is picking up what he began in verse 27, um, but he's saying it in light of what immediately preceded it, the humiliation and exaltation of the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one we obey. He is the reason for our obedience, and his humiliation is the model of our obedience. So if you look back to verse chapter 6, obedience might have reminded you of what Paul said about Christ. Verse 6, he who existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Right? He emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave. He became a man. And if that wasn't enough, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, God has exalted him highly by giving him a name at which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is indeed Lord. And so the text is concerned that we live as citizens of heaven and is putting forth the Son as the model citizen of heaven. Right? You could think of it as the God of heaven becomes obedient citizen of heaven and is exalted to the status of king of heaven. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Paul, as he, again, he planted the church. It's been some time since he's been there, a few years. He's in prison, and his concern is that they would be increasing in their obedience even while he's away. And I think we get this. It can be easier to 
um, walk with the Lord or obey while you're at a Christian camp or on a mission trip or in the women's Bible study or um, at church or lunch with members after church. And that's normal. You know, we're a communal people. But what the text is saying that what began at salvation, we ought to be working out. Paul's absence or our mentor's absence isn't a reason for disobedience. They've always obeyed. That's the default position of a Christian or posture. And even in Paul's absence, they ought to be increasing in their obedience. Why? Verse 13, for it is God who is working in you. Friends, more important than Paul working among the Philippians or your pastor working among you is God working in you. He is the one to whom every knee will bow. And this helps, I think, us understand why Paul describes obedience this way, that it is the working out of our salvation. It's done in fear and trembling. So what do those two things mean? What does it mean to work out our salvation? What does it mean to do so in a posture of fear and trembling? Let's consider first what they don't mean. Perhaps most obvious and most important is that Paul doesn't say we work for our salvation. He says that we work it out. Paul is clear time and time again that salvation is a gift of God, and it's actually something we get for not working. Okay, Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is, of course, the good news of the gospel, that God doesn't treat us as we deserve, but treats us as Christ deserved. That we don't get what we work for, right? The wages of our sin is death, but rather we get what Jesus worked for. And if you're a non-Christian visiting us this morning, if there's one thing that you hear this morning, we want it to be this, that we believe that because we are sinful, we've separated ourselves from God, but God in his love, in his mercy, God the Son became a man to live on our behalf, to die for our sins, that he's risen from the dead, that he has indeed been exalted, that he will return one day to judge the living and the dead, and he offers you today life eternal, and it's a free gift. It's something you get actually not for working, but for trusting. It's not Jesus plus works. It's not Jesus plus some of our works. It's not even Jesus plus our faith. Okay, our faith doesn't accomplish the work that Jesus did. It merely receives what he's done. Grace is a gift. But the freeness of salvation doesn't negate the responsibility that comes with being saved or the responsibility that comes with being a child. God is calling us to obedience. And don't let anyone deceive you. I think it's popular to say that God doesn't desire your obedience, but he does for his glory, for his pleasure, for your good, for your joy. So we're to work out our salvation. We're not working for it. We tend to, I think this might be helpful for us to think about, we tend to think of, talk about salvation in, as a past event. 
And this is true and probably tends to be the emphasis of the New Testament, that God elected us and then in time he called us, regenerated us, converted us, he justified us, we're declared righteous in his sight, we've been adopted as children. And we also think about salvation as a future event, maybe not as much, but we do, and that we're awaiting the return of our Savior, right? When he's going to transform our lowly bodies into the image of his glorious body. So God has, saving the, has saved us. He will save us. But God is also saving us right now. He's removing from us um, the power and the effects of sin. He's conforming us to the image of his Son. And this is what Paul is getting at, that we ought to be working out our salvation, that we ought to be bringing to bear what God says is true about us, that we're holy and blameless, that we're bringing it to bear on our experience in the way that we live. So working out our salvation means two things. One, it means our starting point is the fact that we're justified. Okay, we're living out of a position of being saved. And then secondly, we're bringing it actually to bear on our experience, that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. It's often the case that... um, Adolescents who are adopted, so not young children, but if someone's adopted as an adolescent, so a young teenager or a teenager, especially if they come from a background of trauma, that though they might be declared legally children of their parents and that their parents are not concerned with their past sins or the sins committed about them, that the children, it takes them time to become, to live as a child. So they might not immediately call their parents, their new parents, mom and dad, but Mr. and Miss so-and-so, it's common for them to not even unpack their bags um, because they're not sure if they're just going to end up leaving like they've done so many times in the past as they've traveled around. Sometimes they're in the habit of stealing things, even in the house. They don't realize you don't have to steal. It's yours, you know. And we similarly, though we've been justified, declared righteous, pure, blameless in the eyes of God, Paul is calling us to live in light of that, that it ought to bear more and more in the way that we live that we actually look like children of God. So we are working out our salvation. We're not saving ourselves, but we're working out what he's done and is doing. We're becoming more of what he thinks about us, pure, blameless, righteous. And Paul says we ought to do so with fear and trembling. What or before whom are we fearing? Verse 13, God, for it is God who is working in you. What does it mean to fear God? It's and to tremble before him. I think these words are a bit jarring, especially if you've grown up on a kind of image of God as Santa Claus or Jesus as your homeboy, you might have worn in middle school. Um, And I think for all of us who live in a generation of you be you, you shouldn't have to be afraid of who you are before anyone. This strikes us, it makes us uncomfortable, the thought of fearing and trembling before someone. But the fear of God, it's the proper disposition for a creature before their creator especially for one who continues to rebel against a righteous God. It's a recognition of three things. One, that God is infinitely greater than us, right? He's majestic, transcendent. He's otherly. Second, that he cannot be tamed, okay? God is not a figment of our imagination or creativity, and he's not something we can manipulate like a pagan God or the God of the prosperity gospel, And thirdly, apart from his mercy, we know that we deserve destruction. So this fear and trembling, it's not a fear of judgment. It's not a despairing fear. It's a concern to honor God that's rooted in his character. Okay, this is not a fear that we'll lose our salvation. It's not fear that God's going to um, lose his cool in some kind of hot-headed manner. 
the way that maybe a, uh, a wife lives under the rule of an abusive husband or the way that a child might cower under the fist of their overly abusive father. It's this fear trembling, this reverent, awful disposition that we have before an awesome and holy God. Okay, so you could think of it as reverence or awe or respect, but I think we want to do that without doling what Paul's actually saying, that there is this level of fear and trembling that we feel before God. I've been reading um, the Narnia series with the kids, mainly Haddon. And by reading, I mean I read it. Haddon just, he's sprinting around. He pops his head in when he hears something interesting like a giant or like a lion is slashing someone's face. Or the white witch he's very intrigued by. He's always popping in when he hears something about a witch. And this is one of the things I think C.S. Lewis brilliantly captures in his series is the idea of Christ, right, as a lion. It's very um, deliberate. He's not even a lamb pictured there or something like a deer, but a lion, because he's wanting us to see that something can be both good and terrible at the same time. You're probably familiar with the off-quoted conversation between the children and Mr. and Miss Beavers are explaining who Aslan is to them. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then when Mr. and Miss Beaver and the children finally for the first time see Aslan, Lewis writes this, But for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Arnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And they found they couldn't look at him anymore and grew trembly. If you ever found yourself, not at the zoo, but standing before a lion without a fence or a pit to protect you, I expect you would, fear this, you would feel the same thing, a degree of fear, trembling, reverence, respect, as you behold the nature of the lion and what it could do to you, even if you tried to stop it, right? It's sheer otherness. And unless you were a fool, you would tremble. You would respect the beast on its terms. This is what Lewis is trying to capture when he calls Aslan a wild animal. It's not that he's unpredictable, it's that he's not ours to tame. He's not ours to pin down, he's not a house cat. Friends, how much more should we tremble before the real, true, living and holy God? That we offer him respect, reverence, worship. Again, it's not fearing that he's going to harm us if we're in Christ, But it's a fear knowing that given his sheer power, he could, and given his holiness, he really ought to, apart from Christ. It is the way that creatures respond before their creator. So he says, we work at our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13, look, it says, God is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So if Christ's humiliation and his exaltation is the reason for our worship, this is the grounds of our obedience, okay? That God is working in us both to will and to work. So lest we think salvation is our own doing or even our sanctification, lest we think it's this white knuckling as we obey these external 
commands, lest we think we have room to glory before God about the things that we've done, Paul reminds us we work because God worked in us first and he works in us still. Friends, God doesn't work because man works. We work because God works. He's not waiting for us to do our part before he can do his. The text is reminding us that God is the initiator, the savior, the sustainer. Our very working is evidence of God's work in our life. It's not just the work we do, it's the fact that we even will. The fact that we even desire to move toward obedience is fruit of God's grace in our lives. You might recall hearing this, what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What God began in us, he finishes. What he commands, he empowers. Okay, he doesn't command us only to then tie up our legs. He's the wind behind us as we are running our race. So how do we bring these two things together? I think at first blush, they seem incompatible, right? Work out your salvation because God is working in you to do the very work that he commands. And while we might not understand it, I think the first thing to see is that for Paul, there doesn't seem to be any tension in the two. They're both reality, that we are responsible to work before God. We have a particular role and responsibility in our sanctification, but that God is the one who began it. He's the one who empowers it, okay? Both these things can be true, that God is the prime actor or mover in the universe and in my salvation, and we are responsible before him. And friends, it's a comfort knowing that we can obey God because he's working in us to obey God. He's not going to leave us hanging between the time of justification and our death or his arrival, right? He's not going to leave us as the mess we are. He is with us as we just sang, leading us by his very hand. As we work it out, he is the one working in us. So what kind of work do we do? We obey God. We are bringing salvation to bear on our experience, and we do so walking humbly in awe of who God is, even while he's working in us now. And then Paul turns to our witness. That is our witness in the world as God's children. Look again at verse 14 through 16. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Notice how Paul moves from something really broad, right? Continue obeying, work out your salvation. Any, uh, any command he would put next would fall under that umbrella. But he moves from really broad, work out your salvation, to something very specific. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. One of Paul's major concerns of writing the book, if you uh, recall, it's the unity of the Philippians, it's central for their experience of the gospel, their perseverance in the gospel, their advance of the gospel. And a, ma- a major part of what Paul has in mind when he's telling them right now to obey God is to walk in unity. Okay, we see that salva- salvation is communal. And what Paul does is he takes the Philippian church and our church and puts us in the context of redemptive history. And he does this by... Um, comparing our church to the failures of Israel, to everything without grumbling and arguing. So those words probably grumbling, arguing, they pop out to you immediately um, if you're a parent or a teacher, but also if you're familiar with your Old Testament. 
Israel, time and time again, can, they are the generation that grumbled before God. There are probably 10 different times that you could find this recorded. They're grumbling before God. It begins with them as their backs are against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his chariots are pressing in. They grumble, you know, where there were not enough graves in Egypt that we could have died there, that you brought us out into the wilderness to die. Probably most notably, they grumble when they receive the report about um, the fortified cities and the strength of the people in Canaan. So they've been brought out by God, by all of his, by his strong hands and his signs and wonders. They've made it there, and they grumble against God. Numbers 14, verse 2. All of the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole company told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? You see, their fundamental problem was that they feared the world more than they feared God. And in doing so, they grumbled against one another as a fruit of their grumbling or their distrust of God. And so what Paul's doing is he's situating us in this, this story in redemptive history, right? Israel grumbled against Moses as they traveled through the wilderness of the promised land. And Paul's applying that to the church, telling us we ought to not grumble and argue with one another as we travel through the wilderness to the promised land the heavenly Jerusalem. And he tells us why, verse 15, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. And again, Paul, he looks to Israel's past and he quotes what's in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. This is Moses right before Israel is about to head into the promised land. Without Moses, Moses gives him a speech and he recites, he records and then recites words of a song. And he says this in verse 5. His people have acted corruptly toward him. This is their defect. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. So in the past, Israel, they grumbled and argued against God. And in doing so, they were not faultless children of God. They were the ones who were devious and crooked. But Paul takes this language and rather than applying it to the people of God as it was true of Israel, he applies it to the pagan world in Philippi, not the church. You might say he applies it to Memphis and not NBC, that we ought to be the ones who are pure and blameless in the midst of a generation that is crooked and devious. Can you find better words that capture the climate of our country and culture right now? Grumbling, arguing, perverse. You see, a commitment to unity and purity, it's one of the chief, or ought to be one of the chief distinguishing markers about the people of God, that they ought to be able to look at us and see in our unity and the way that we live that we're different. How would it, how, what would that look like for us to do everything without grumbling, or said differently, what would it look like for us to grumble and argue with each other about nothing? How would that impact the way we post on social media about each other or other Christians? The way we talk to and about one another as the election approaches? The way we talk to and about one another after the election day? The way we talk to and about various members, uh, maybe based on their kind of COVID practices or conscience? What would it look like to not respond in grumbling when you've been sinned against by one of your members? Which I promise you, if you become a member here and seek to do life with us, we will sin against you. (laughs) Because we're not perfect. What Paul tells us to do 
everything, that means all of our obedience and life and mission without grumbling. We don't get a pass for politics or because we don't understand this particular person's culture or because that member does that one thing that really irks me. You see, the contrast between the children of God and the perverted generation is so stark that we ought to shine like stars in the world. It ought to be the difference between light and darkness. Children of God, children of the word, world, it should be clear to us and to them. In the city, it's, it's hard to see the stars at night, you know this, living in Memphis, and it's because of what's called light pollution. Basically, because we have so many you know, synthetic lights, um, there's a glow above cities that makes it such that most of the stars in the sky, they don't shine through it. So there's this kind of blurring between the city and the world and the stars, okay, such that you can't really see the stars. They're blending in. If you've ever been far out of the city, maybe somewhere really remote, um, you can see the stars better, right? It's breathtaking. And there's the contrast between the stars and our world is obvious. And you see the way that the stars actually illuminate, they reveal. We ought to shine like stars in the world. Our problem, obviously, is not that um, the people around us are so bright or pure, but that we try to blend in so we don't have to stand out. We seek to, as Bryce prayed this morning, dim ourselves down. We make allowances for impurity in the way we talk at work, the way we handle ourselves in social settings, the way we're willing to adapt how we think and talk about things like gender or marriage, the way we cozy up with the things that dishonor and displease the Lord, the way that we seek to make our preaching and evangelism more palatable, the way that we would, if we could, blur the lines between the church and the world. And sometimes we just flat out don't look that different. And in particular, what Paul has in mind here is the way that we relate to each other in such a way that it doesn't lead to grumbling and arguing. Right? We live in a country that in many ways is at war between red or blue or young or old or however you want to put it. And what happens is we tend to align ourselves so with little kings, not with the king, that we're willing to throw stones at one another because the thing that really captures me, my identity, is that thing that you disagree with. But Paul's saying our unity, it shouldn't be as shallow as something like culture or political party um, or the way that you were raised in your home. Not saying any of those things are unimportant. But our unity ought to display the one thing that we actually all have in common together, Jesus. Right? As the world looks at us, they ought to be asking the questions, why do those Christians treat each other as though the others are more important? And they can see that in the way that we serve one another, the way that we care for our orphans or widows or poor, our new parents, our struggling singles. How can they love each other when they voted differently? Right? It, it doesn't make any sense. Friends, it's consistent with our God the one who took the form of a slave and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as he considered the interests of others. And we do this, Paul tells us how, verse 16, by holding firm to the word of life. And this does two things for us. One, it gives us our cues on how to live, how to relate, how to think, how to deal with our own sin, how to repent of it, how to forgive others when they sin against us. It shows us what are the things that we actually divide over, the things that actually unite us. 
You see, it's not what your favorite news station might tell you, but we get it by holding firm, two hands, double clutch, not letting go to the words of life. To God's life-giving, life-sustaining words in gospel. Our statement of faith reads this way about the scriptures. It says that they are the center of Christian union. They are the only sufficient, certain, authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And I think if we were honest, we would have to confess and repent to the fact that for us, the scriptures have not been the true source of Christian union. It's, I need you to believe this way and also align with my political party. I need you to think about Jesus this way, but also agree with me in my stance on the police or my position on parenting or vaccinating children. But the word of God gives us what we need to hold to in order to shine like the stars. And notice it's called the word of life. So this is the second thing that it does is our message is life-giving, okay? We're not trying to make it through the wilderness or the perverted generation without people seeing us. We are to shine like the stars in the skies as we cling to the very words of life, the words that give life, that are hope offering, and we see there has to be, and I think this is Paul's concern, there has to be a consistency between the life we preach about and the life we live. So time and time again, Paul, we see that he's concerned with the advance of the gospel. If you just look through chapter 1, verse 7, 12, 13, 14, 15, verse 18, he says that what matters is that Christ is proclaimed. Chapter 127, he says he wants to see that they're standing firm in one spirit and one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. But friends... If we are as dim as a world without hope, they are not going to be buying what we are selling. How tragic would it be if come November, the world looks at NBC and says, look, they're just like us. They can't forgive each other. Their hope is in the election. They also hate those with whom they disagree with. Or if at that point, um, those with minority positions leave the church, and, we, and look, their church looks like an echo chamber, just like ours. You see, friends, real unity is attractive. It helps us to shine like stars in the sky in the midst of a hope, in the midst of a world that desperately needs hope. So unity is attractive. It's central to our witness. It's also central to our worship. Look at the rest of verse 16. Paul says, Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. We turn to consider now our worship, that is our spiritual worship. Paul's concern, as we see, is that the Philippians, they continue to obey, that as they work out their salvation, specifically, they're not grumbling or arguing, and in doing so, because their unity is central to their perseverance, the advance of the gospel, them making it on that day pure and blameless, Paul would have not labored in vain. So Paul is not concerned that he's going to Um, lose his salvation or anything like that, but he is concerned about his standing before Christ at the day of judgment. Specifically, he's been given this stewardship as an apostle, and he doesn't want to show up empty-handed, so to speak. So Paul is wanting to boast in what he's done, not in competition with Christ, but for Christ. He's not bragging about himself. He's the one that wrote that God began the work. That God carries the work, that he finishes the work, that our working is God willing and working in us to work. Paul knows that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And many of those 
bending knees and confessing tongues will be doing so in joy. Paul wants to be able to look at knees and tongues and say, look, Jesus, what I did for you. He is wanting to offer up worship to God in the way that he obeys Christ, in the way that he is a good steward of what's been given to him, in the way that he responds to the lavish love of God. He knows that Jesus is supremely worthy. So his ministry is worship, and he's willing to spend himself toward that end. Look at verse 7. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So priests would often, obviously, they would offer a sacrifice to God of worship. Something like, say, a lamp. And then sometimes there would also be a grain offering, bread, and then sometimes also a drink offering, wine, which would be poured out. It's like you got the most important thing, the lamb, you know, and you understand this with dinner too if you eat meat. You got the meat. (laughs) You don't have to have bread, but you can. You don't need to have wine, but it's a nice addition, you know. And Paul does what's really interesting here. You would expect him in this metaphor to make himself the priest. It's actually the Philippians who are pictured as the priest. They're the ones offering their sacrificial service to God. And Paul is just this kind of oh hors d'oeuvre, being poured out, assisting in their worship to God. And so Paul is concerned with their sacrificial service, the sacrificial service of their faith, their costly trusting obedience to God whether it's the working out of their salvation by not bending a knee to Nero or by sharing a gospel with family members. It could be us opposing racism in our spheres of influence. It could be raising our kids in the fear and instruction of the Lord, working in a way that honors God, forgiving a member who sins against you, repenting to a member when you sin against them, bearing the burdens of our fellow members, showing up ready to sing on a Sunday morning to enhance the worship of our other members. And so, Paul, he's trying to facilitate the Philippians' all-of-life worship to God, even if it means him being poured out, that is, him dying on their behalf. Paul uses the same language at the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, in the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This is the embodiment of Paul's to live as Christ, to die as gain maxim. He's rejoicing, not because he wants to die. He's not on a crusade to lose his head or anything. But because his being poured out on their behalf resounds in their boasting in Jesus Christ. It resounds in their worship of their Savior. That Jesus, their master, is being magnified in their lives and Paul is happy even to die as a small part toward that end. That's how worthy Jesus is. That whether by life or death, he might be honored in our bodies. Paul is giving himself to what is ultimate, the worship of Jesus, even if it means losing something that's not ultimate, his life. And it leads to his joy. And it ought to lead to their and our joy. He is happy just to be an instrument in the hands of a redeemer, happy to do spiritual good to the Philippians even if it costs his physical life, and he rejoices. Brothers and sisters, do you share the same attitude about Christ? Is he supremely worthy? 
worth honoring in your bodies, whether by life or death. What about your members? Do you think about your fellow members in the same way? That their worship of God is worth your being expended? Do you concern yourself with how um, the parents are discipling their children? Do you concern yourself with all of our knowledge, holiness, and love? This is, of course, what it means to be a member here, that our spiritual worship, it ceases to be just our business. It becomes our collective business. Friends, everything we do is worship. The question is, to whom are we offering the worship? Are we stewarding the ministry that Christ has given us? We might not be apostles, but we are members of this church. We're neighbors, co-workers, parents, brothers, sisters, Sons and daughters, can you think of a better way to say thank you to the God who humbled himself and died in your place than by offering all of life worship and by facilitating the worship of your brothers and sisters, than by sharing the gospel, that's inviting more people into the worship and joy of the Son as we ourselves travel on our way to the promised land. So how do we respond to the humble obedience and deserved exaltation of the Son? Well, we ought to work out our salvation as God is working in us. We ought to witness to the world by holding firm to the word of life. And we ought to worship by walking in obedience and concerning ourselves with the worship of others. Let's pray. Father, we again are humbled as we consider the humility of your Son the love of the triune God that you would send your son to live on our behalf to die for our sins. We rejoice in his victorious resurrection and exaltation. We do pray that we would live in light of that reality, in light of the humility of the son, in light of your lavished love and grace upon us. We pray that as a people, we would not be a grumbling people, an arguing people. We pray that the world would be able to look at us and see something distinct, not because we agree about everything, but because we agree about the most important thing. Would you help increase our allegiance to your son, help increase our love and humility to and before one another. Give us a disposition that cares more about the worship of you in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.